Welcome back to another episode of On My Grown, the podcast. I'm your co-host, Rodney Boyd. I'm your co-host, Melanie Mitchell. And today we have a special guest joining us. Yes. Let me put on my professional voice. Uh, we have Miss Patrice Washington. She's a nationally recognized best-selling author, featured columnist, television commentator, transformational speaker, spokesperson, radio host, and leading authority on personal finance, entrepreneurship, and success for women and youth. A licensed real estate professional by her sophomore year in college and a real estate mortgage broker at age 21, Patrice took her boutique brokerage brokerage from the dining room of her 700-square-foot condo to a seven-figure real estate empire by just 25. After losing her fortune in the Great Recession, she dedicated her life to not just rebuilding and reinventing her own life, but helping the masses move from debt management to money mastery. Nationally known as America's Money Maven, Patrice has tremendous success with her money mindset approach to personal finance. Her teachings go beyond coupon cutting, budgeting, and credit repair, and focus on shifting mindset, earning more, and living your purpose. Patrice is committed to redefining the term wealth, encouraging women to have wealth in all all aspects of their lives by pursuing their dreams, by uh, being fulfilling, and earning more without ever chasing money. She's built a thriving community of engaged women committed to talk uh, to taking their personal finance careers and lives to the next level and continue to invest in women worldwide. Besides professional achievements such as uh, receiving the Outstanding Georgia Citizen Award at the state capitol and an honorary Kentucky Colonel recognition, Patrice believes her greatest accomplishment is marrying her college sweetheart, Gerald Washington, and raising their energetic daughter, Reagan. Uh, Patrice has is the author of three books. Uh, including bestsellers "Real Money Answers for Every Woman" for for every woman, "Real Money Answers College Life and Beyond," and "Real Money Answers for Men." Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Patrice to On My Ground podcast. What an introduction! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. I appreciate your professional voice efforts. That was nice. Yeah, this is going to be a very well-behaved podcast. I you know, have my leash on this week. It's going to be fun um, in front of company. So, uh, Well, you know, money is a very serious matter. And, and so for our guests, for our audience, we want to bring in the best. So uh, we brought Patrice in. Um, is there anything, you know, I missed in, in the reading of your bio you want to cover with the audience? Mm. Well, there was so much. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, I, you pretty much got it. Like at the at the heart of it all, like my mission is really just to restore hope. You know, as someone who did make a lot of money really young, I just learned a lot of great lessons along the way. And if I could help anyone prevent uh, a lot of what I've been through, but also experience some of the good stuff, you know, that I've been through, then that's my mission is really just to get out here and share my testimony in the hopes that, you know, it'll give other people hope. All right. Um, awesome. So I, let's, um, I know the, the audience is going to be eager. So um, I just kind of want to jump into the questions unless Mel, you wanted to add something. Um, yeah, we can get into it. I'll ask the first question. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. So you said you made a lot of money very young. Um, they gave you too much mm-hmm. power too soon. So, What would you say are the most common mistakes college students and recent graduates make when it comes to money? Well, I could tell you the biggest mistake that I made um, was not knowing how to ask for help. Like I was a business major in school. Um, I had learned a bit about personal finance. I got my first license in sophomore year 
and started, you know, doing really well. And then by 21, getting that broker's license and actively um, selling real estate and doing mortgage loans, I was making six figures at 21. And I thought that I knew it all, you know, because I was making more money at that time than my mom was making, quite frankly. And so I didn't come from a background where, you know, there was a lot of rich uncles or someone in the family where I could ask advice. So I never learned how to really ask for help. I was the one that made it. And so, you know, everyone came to me. I didn't know how to let my guard down or surrender and say, I need help. And so when the real estate market crashed for me, I think that was my biggest downfall was was thinking that a college degree made you smart, made you too Mm -hmm. smart to humble yourself and ask for help. And so I would say for anyone, especially a college student, like learn from other people's mistakes. Be okay with saying, hey, what do I need to know? Like, what am I not thinking about? What am I not thinking through? And a lot of times we just feel like, you know, I could figure it out. I can make it happen. I could Google. I could YouTube. (laughs) Like, you know, I I could ask my other friend who's just as clueless as I am instead of humbling yourself. And so when I learned how to humble myself and kind of surrender and let go of this facade of being the bright one, the smart one, um, the one who had it all figured out, then that's when I was able to um, go from scraping up change, which is what happened when I lost everything in the recession. I was able to go from scraping up change to rebuilding my life. And there were more people willing to help me than I thought. Um, but I just had to humble myself first. Mm, I feel that. So you got to ask the tough questions. You got to be okay with saying, mm-hmm. I don't even know what I don't know. Sometimes it's just like, you don't even know, you know, like you just like, <laughs> something's not right. Mm-hmm. Like something, like right. something got to give. I got to be, but at the end of the day, you have to realize you've already brought yourself as far as you can. And so to go to the next level mm-hmm. is going to take, you know, admitting, I don't know what's next. And once I was able to even say to people like, look, you seem successful. Like, you know, you seem like you figured some stuff out. Here's my story. I don't even know what to ask you, but whatever wisdom you can share with me, I'm willing to listen. And then I start being able to just piece things together based on being vulnerable enough to have that conversation with a lot of different people. Hmm. I was going to ask something. I like those. Okay. You got a little silence. What we got going on? No, because right? I'm trying to think. Still processing? <laughs> yeah, no, because I'm, I, you know, um, no, I think you answered it. I was, yeah, no, you answered it. Um, okay, so um, millennials were regarded as, as, as being very different from uh, previous generations. Um, I guess, what are you, what do you think we need to change in our mindset about wealth and money uh, compared to previous generations? I mean, I'm technically a millennial, so I'm, you know, I barely squeezed in there with y'all. I included you in (laughs) (laughs) Like, I barely uh, squeezed in there, but I am. And, you know, beyond asking for help, I would say being okay with, like, failing forward. um, I don't know. I think that because we're one of the first generations to grow up with so much information at our fingertips, we just have this thing about wanting to be perfect or wanting to have this appearance that we have it all figured out. And again, I just think that that's BS. Like we know you don't have it figured out, you know, all figured out. I know people in their forties and fifties that don't have it all figured out. Like it's okay to not, 
it's okay to go after progress and not perfection. And because we live in this age of social media where everyone has the perfect filter and they don't use the app to make the perfect body and they make everything seem like it's oh so amazing, we feel like we can't be real about where we actually are or what our weaknesses are or where our failures lie. And, and, you know, and it's okay. Like I'm okay at this stage in my life with failing forward, like knowing I don't know it all. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm good with taking the next best step. And if in the next best step, it doesn't go the way I planned, it's okay. Cause I'm committed to the bigger vision. I'm not attached to how I get there. So I'm flexible enough to go, you know what? I'm going to give it my best shot and keep pushing forward as opposed to standing still and or pretending that I know it all and then feeling some kind of way, you know, behind closed doors or when I'm offline. Okay. I like that. Now you want to go ahead with the next one? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I need this for myself personally, especially for millennials and trying to get this together. So how would you recommend creating a budget for someone who has never, you know, made one before? Like what tips would you have for someone to stick to it? I think the first thing with with sticking to a budget is understanding the bigger picture. Like a lot of times we think that a budget is about limiting our fun or not allowing us to do the things that we want to do. And it's actually quite the opposite. It's like the budget gives you the freedom to see where your money is going instead of looking up and thinking, well, where the hell did it go? So the budget is really simple. Like I'm, I'm not for making things harder than they have to be. Like my word for this year is simplicity, right? And I think that we get so caught up in like thinking that it has to be this this big to do when it's as simple as taking out a piece of paper and on one side writing, uh, you know, folding it in half and on one side going, this is how much is coming in. These are all the ways that I bring in money. And then on this side, here are what my fixed expenses are. And here are the things where, you know, I might change from time to time. It's a little variable, but here's what I got. And then just looking at it and going, if this doesn't add up, then I got to do something. Either I have to sacrifice and cut something out or, I can figure out how to hustle and make more. It's really that simple. But I think that people make budgeting so serious. Like money is, is I guess, a serious topic, but it's not that serious to me. I think we make it harder than it has to be. And your attitude towards a process is going to determine your success with it. So if you lighten up a little bit and just make it, you know, another one of these things that you do, it's a part of your life, like going to the gym or you know, any other number of things that you do is just a part of life. Once you just see it as a necessary part of your lifestyle, it's not hard. It just is what it is. And it gives you the opportunity to be realistic about how you're going to, you know, pay off your debt or save or achieve whatever goals you set for yourself. It's really not hard. It, you you have to make it simple or it's, or it's going to be such a big undertaking that you'll never do it. So I'm big on simplicity. Okay. Hmm. So, right? <laughs> am I stumping you guys? Like, what am I? <laughs> I, don't, I want it. I don't know what he got going over there. He may be no, 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 making no, his no, budget no. as we. <laughs> right, 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 right. I have my Excel sheet up. So, so simply put, kind of looked at your fixed expenses and then your um the other things that may fluctuate between month and month, and right. and, and and just simply do it. 
Yeah. Like the way that I really suggest creating a budget. So I used to counsel hundreds of people in Atlanta. Um, back in the day, I worked at a nonprofit and how I really built the systems that I use today is because not only did I help, you know, did I rebuild my own life, I helped a lot of other people do this. And one of the things that I realized is like a lot of the advice out there, conventional wisdom tells you to track your expenses so you can, you know, start to budget. I think that's BS because we're creatures of habit and we lie. Like, quite frankly, like when people know they're tracking their expenses, even if it's just for themselves, they modify their behavior. You start to be like, oh, I'm not going to take the subway. I'll walk, you know, or, oh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to stop at Starbucks, you know, because you know that you're tracking it. So you're trying to look like the best version of yourself for yourself, which is a lie. There's food at home. Right, you start, yeah, but that's not how you feel when you're in the minute and you want to stop at that bodega or the restaurant or whatever. You're not thinking like that. It's just not real. Like it's not real. I watch people fail at this over and over again, and so I tell people start with like your last three or four months of bank statements and go through and look at every category and then come up like add it all up, take an average, and then look at what you were really spending, especially for those variable things, right? Like, how much are you really spending on Uber? How much are you really spending on going out with friends? How much are you really spending on all these other ancillary activities? And then once you figure out your um, where all your income sources are and you allocate every dollar towards your expenses, you're going to see where you might be spending too much in an area. Because I don't believe on cutting out fun. I'm not really about deprivation at all. I believe in discipline. And so... If those are things that you enjoy doing, it doesn't make sense to try to cut them out to make the budget look better on paper and then fail every month at doing the budget at living the budget. It makes more sense to make it realistic and simple and then just work backwards. Mm. And that I mean, that's what I do even at this stage. You know, when I when my when I sit down and assess my husband and I spending like. I can see very clearly where we had a little too much fun. You know, and I'm not going to stop having fun. But then we get to have a conversation about it like, hey, you know, next month we may not be able to do as much as X, Y and Z. And for me, it's not about for me at this stage, it's not about the money because I have the money. It's about making sure that I stick to the discipline so that I don't lose my money. You feel me? You know, so, um, you know, it's a muscle. So you just have to get into the habit of analyzing what you're doing because it's a muscle. And a lot of people think, you know, well, when I have more money, it'll be easy. Well, no, when you have more money, that's more money to trick off. So if you really build the muscle now, wherever you are with whatever your earnings are, you know, as you start to make more, whether that be a hundred or 250,000 or 500,000, you are in a better place to manage it wisely because the same mindset that mismanages $50,000 is the exact same mindset that'll mismanage 500,000. It's just that you're building the muscle. So you don't even have to go that route. So, uh, thank you. Okay. So I, I get that one now. Um, what are your thoughts on credit cards? Uh, studies are showing that as a generation, um, us millennials uh, have significantly less credit cards than um, our predecessors. I think that's awesome. <laughs> if you have less credit card debt, like I, um, I am very aware that it takes credit. It takes using debt and credit in order to really build your credit score. You know, getting a 750, 800 credit score is basically a function of how well you manage debt. 
Um, so without managing some level of debt, you really won't have anything to show. And it's just as bad to end up with no credit score. You know, that's the same as having bad credit. So, you know, as long as you can have discipline with it, I don't see credit cards as evil. You know, credit cards are not evil. It's the person who's handling the credit card. If they lack discipline, then that's where the problem lies. Um, I think it's great that there's less credit card debt for this generation. I think, you know, what could be said about that? It's just hopefully whatever debt you do have, you just understand how to manage it. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's great. I mean, I came out of college with $18,000 in credit card debt and it wasn't even mm -hmm. told you I was tail end. So I'm that other generation, but like, you know, it was a function of (laughs) getting to college. First of all, growing up in South central Los Angeles, getting to um, this big college, uh, University of Southern California, and then walking down this corridor where they were like, you want a T-shirt? You want a water bottle? You want a visor? And being like, yeah, I know my social now. Absolutely. Sign me up. And then not not being one of those people. I don't know about you guys, but I never had any conversations about credit, about money, about debt or any of that stuff as a young person, as a kid. All I knew is that my mom had a lot of credit card debt. So credit cards are what you do when you're grown. And it didn't matter how smart I was. It doesn't matter that I was at this grade school on scholarships and all on the dean's list. You know, Mm -hmm. my relationship with credit cards was very emotional. It was just, this is what you do. Like, you know, you need a pizza. I got you. Cool. But I kept all my money. So my credit score was awesome because I paid it on time all the time. But I was still over you know, what I should be at that age in credit card debt. And so for if anyone can avoid that, then absolutely. But for those of you where you know that you didn't have very specific conversations or this money thing is a little difficult for you, I would really say to avoid it at all costs. You know, you're going to have other ways to build credit, whether that be through your student loan or a car note or something else. You don't have to use a credit card. But for many people, that's the first that's the first entry. OK. Yeah. All right. Is it so? So you would say there is a such thing as good debt, not necessarily talking about amount, but I guess just the type it comes from, because you mentioned student loans and um, car notes. No, I'm saying you're gonna you're gonna have that anyway. So don't think okay. I need credit cards to build my credit. You're going to have if you have student loans or a car note, you're gonna have other opportunities to build your credit and show that you're responsible. Um, I don't really believe in good debt. I think that the best debt is the debt you don't owe anymore. You know, like I don't, there's, there's nothing to me good about any kind of debt. And I hate when people actually in my space call things good debt because it makes people feel like okay with having it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I meet people who are deferring student loans for 15 years because they think it's good debt. Well, now you've added all kind of crazy interest. Like, so what good is that? That's not helping you. Like, how does that benefit you? The sooner you get out of debt, the better. So I'm not a fan of the term of good debt, not even if it's a mortgage. Um, you know, I, I I think it's it's ridiculous because I think words are powerful and they really create our intentions. And when people call things good debt, it makes it seem like they have no intention of getting mm-hmm. out of it. And I'm not trying to be in debt forever. So what tips do you have for someone trying to save or pay down one of their debts or their debts, period? Well, one tip I would say, because I get this question a lot about which one should I do first? 
And I would say that you need to do that simultaneously. And one of the ways that you start that is by, again, looking at that budget, um, figuring out where you can free up some cash if that's a possibility. And again, if you can't free up anything, if you've cut everything out, you can possibly cut out, then the only other logical thing for you to do is earn more. But whatever that is, Mm -hmm. let's say you can free up an additional $100 a month over and above what you already pay in your expenses, then my suggestion suggestion is always the 50-50 method where you take 50% and put it towards savings and 50% and pay off one debt at a time. Not a little something here, not $10 here, $10 there. Just take the additional $50 and focus on one debt where you can go over and above the minimum payment. And that's because I see a lot of people who will try to throw any additional money they can, tax refunds, inheritances, some type of windfall, bonus, whatever, at their debt, but then they don't save anything. And so we live in the real world where accidents don't make appointments, stuff happens, things happen, you know, and if you've put all your money towards just paying off debt and you have no savings, as soon as something happens, you get back in debt because you got to borrow the money or put it on a credit card or do something else. And that's not wise either. So on the flip side, I see people who try to save too much. So they don't want to put anything towards their debt. They want to have everything in savings, but then they ended up wasting money on unnecessary interest. So if you follow the 50-50 method, it's an easy and quick way to, to get into building up your savings and paying down debt simultaneously as opposed to doing one over the other because you need both. Okay. I like that. I have to put that in play for real. Uh, Rodney. Oh, I thought it was me. You good over there. Yeah, I, 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 oh, it's it's your turn. Okay. <laughs> um, so so you uh you got your real estate license at the age of twenty one, and so home ownership is a is a big, uh, it's kind of a big question mark for our listeners. Uh, I guess for those who are interested in home ownership, what are some things we can do now to be prepared for when we're ready to buy that first home? Well. One of the first things you can do um, is, like we talked about, really paying down that debt and building up savings as much as possible. Um, The more money you have saved, the more I always say, you know, lenders love to give money to people who look like they don't need it. But when you look like you need the money and your accounts are empty and your credit score is bad, they're not fooling with you. So the best thing to do is really prepare yourself, even if you feel like this is something that's five or 10 years off. Again, it's like building the momentum. So you want to be in the habit of saving because you need more than just a down payment. There's a lot that comes with home ownership. And so some people are like, oh, you know, they, they have the dream home in their minds or condo or whatever. And then they want to um, focus in on just that number. But you need more than a down payment. You also need closing costs. You also need to you, you also may need reserves, which is, you know, a certain amount of money, sometimes six months of the payment tucked aside. To, to make sure so the lender knows that if something happens to your income, you can still pay the mortgage. And then you might want to like paint, you know, you might want new carpet. <laughs> like You might want to do a few things. So it's more than just a down payment. So that's one thing is just really building up that savings and paying down as much debt as possible. But I would say to any millennial, this is one big lesson um, that I learned from getting into real estate early. I bought my first piece of property at 22. And um, and then from that point, I ended up owning like 13 pieces of property at the you know height of the recession when everything crumbled. And one of the things that I always wished I would have done was start with income property first. 
uh, and specifically property that I could live in where I should have. And I don't regret much, but this is just one of those things, you know, that I kind of wish I would have talked to someone about who could have given me some wise counsel. If I had it to do over when I was 22, instead of buying a condo and totally gutting it and rehabbing it and making it all fly, I would have bought like a three unit building and I would have made my unit fly and made the other two just good enough to get the top rent, <laughs> to get the best rent I could in the market because those other two units would have paid for me to live in my place, you, you know? And now some, whatever this is, what, 15 years later, you know, I, that is a property that I wouldn't have had to sell or possibly have foreclosed on um, when the market crashed because I would have had these tenants that were taking care of it. And so I know when you're younger too, it's like you want to be fly, you want to, you know, you, you have this perception of what you want to look like, but that's not always financially the thing that makes the most sense. And the person who ends up winning in the long run is the person who's thinking outside the box and thinking long term about creating something that pays for itself, period. It's so um, it's so funny you just mentioned that that's actually how my parents got their start. They bought a two flat at the time that had an unfinished basement, finished the basement. And so we lived there for our first five years and the rent from our tenants um, helped, helped with them buying the uh, the down payment on our, our first home. Mm-hmm. That's the way to go. Like, I again, I'm glad you had that example, Rodney. Like, I didn't have that example. My mom rented essentially my entire life. And just this past year, I ended up buying a duplex. Um, they're, they're building a stadium for the Rams here in Southern California in Inglewood, California. And I ended up uh, getting a great deal on a duplex and I had to, I bought it for 500,000, a little over 500,000, totally rehabbed both units. It looked like some, some psychedelic situation that hadn't been touched since the seventies. It was a mess, but um, I totally rehabbed the entire thing, my husband and I, and that was my gift to my mom for her retirement. So my mom lives in the downstairs unit completely rent free. Wow. Um, and then I, yeah, I was just there yesterday and I was like, man, I can't believe it still, it still hits me. Cause you know, that's one of the goals that you're able to do. I've bought my mom cars and stuff like that, but, ha- but making sure that she can live somewhere that's safe, that's beautiful. That's actually the best place she's ever lived in since coming to this country. Um, you know, it's just a blessing. And my tenants upstairs are paying for like 70% of the mortgage. So that to me was better, you know, than coming here and just putting her in a quick condo or, you know, cause I just moved back to California um, recently, but it was better than doing that, you know? And so my 36 year old self now knows better than what my 22 year old self did, you know, knew. So if I could give that to anyone who's looking at their first place, like get something that someone else can pay for, um, you know, instead of having to shoulder the burden on your own. Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking like, I'm, I'm, I wish because I'm the youngest child, I grew up reaping the benefits of like my parents struggle. They were like 13 years into their marriage once I was born. So my oldest sister really, like when they lived in a duplex and we're, we're saving up to buy our house and like we already established. So I really do wish I was able to see like, I guess my parents struggle. I do, but I don't. But like for the for the learning experience, like Rodney said, that sounds like really great. So by the time I was in the picture, 
you know, things were already done. Yeah, they always, you know what, older siblings always feel some kind of way <laughs> about <laughs> younger siblings for that reason. You know, yeah. my daughter is 10 and um, she's been through all of this with us from losing everything, living in a 600 square foot box. You know, um, I had a 6,000 square foot home when the recession hit that foreclosed. We fled. <laughs> we didn't move nicely. We fled to Southern <laughs> to, to Louisiana and then ended up in Atlanta sleeping on my brother's couch. And so my daughter has been through sleeping on her uncle's couch to a, a little apartment in Atlanta, to moving up and up and up to houses, to being back to where we are um, with, you know, my business, six multiple six figures and my husband, seven figures again. And so she's seen every level of this journey. And I'm so grateful because I'm, I'm my prayer is and I'm really intentional about talking to her about it. But just that she's, you know, she knows that if something goes down with her, that she can rebuild herself. But we're looking at possibly adopting a baby. And I'm already like, this kid's not even going to understand, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like you're not even going to understand the struggle. But my older brother and I are um, 10 years apart. And, you know, he went down the wrong path. We didn't grow up in the best neighborhood and everything that could go wrong, unfortunately, went wrong, you know, and. He's always like, well, just because, you know, when mommy had you, she was older. I mean, I apologize. What can I do? (laughs) But, you know, my fault. we can still learn. I mean, I think that, uh, Mel, you you can still learn because at least you know the story. So even though you weren't there for all all the struggle that came with it, you know what your parents were able to accomplish. So that gives you something. We don't have to learn everything the hard way. Like, that's a lot. You ever made that up yeah, I was I was there for the second move from Miami to Atlanta, and that was a big move. So I was mm-hmm. able to appreciate that at least. Um, so I have a this is a selfish question for me. Um, what what are your thoughts about um <laughs> buying foreclosed properties, or or what is you know is that something you would recommend, or what's the process with that? Yeah, um, I believe in buying whatever makes sense. Like some properties are in foreclosure, but even at the foreclosure price, that doesn't mean it makes sense, you know, based on what you're trying to do. You know, sometimes people kind of just throw that out there like, oh, it's foreclosed. But I mean, if the value in the area, you know, I don't know where you guys live, but if the let's say the value in the area is you know, 500,000 and the property is foreclosing and they're trying to get rid of it for 489. Well, clearly that doesn't make sense. So like, that's not going to really be beneficial to you. Um, But I think it's a great strategy. I think with anything you want to do, especially anything with finances, the big thing is just doing your research and really, and with real estate, knowing the market, you know, like there's a lot of people who blow great deals because they're not familiar with the market. And they don't have um, a safety net in place and a strategy in place to make it the best deal possible. So one of the things that I've learned, um, even if I am going to buy property out of state, for example, is that I really partner up with someone who is very familiar with the market, familiar with the neighborhoods, who is really a master of that territory, as opposed to trying to think that I can use my formula here in California and make it work in Atlanta. That's not always the case. And that's how we play ourselves. That's a part of how Mm -hmm. I ended up with those 13 pieces of property. They were all over the country. And some of them were in markets that I did not understand. And so when the market crashed, I didn't have a strategy. Like I didn't have a plan and I didn't have any partners in place to help me turn them around quickly. So then I wasted time trying to go find realtors 
or find people that could help me. And it, it just wasn't feasible um, by the time everything hit the fan. So I think with anything, it's about really doing your homework and being more committed to really creating a great deal for yourself as opposed to just trying to say that you got into real estate and you made something happen. Because sometimes we do it for the show and not because we're willing to sacrifice the time and effort and energy to really come up with a sound strategy. And on the flip side, there's people who have analysis paralysis. So you're somewhere thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and never taking action. So you got to find that balance of, have I created the best relationships in this area? Do I really feel comfortable? Do I have a safety net of cash or whatever else um, or, or an investor or some way to leverage my credit and whatever I do have, you know, and then am I ready to act? And there's just, there's a balance you have to strike with that. Okay. Great. Right. Uh, Mel, you up next. Okay. Um, hmm. Trying to think. Okay. Um, so what tools or resources uh, resources would you recommend to someone looking to have a better handle of their money? You know, I have to be honest with you. Um, the thing that separates me from a lot of personal finance experts, if you will, and, and maybe other guests that you've had on the show is that when I lost everything and rebuilt my life, um, I have not focused on all of that. You know, people ask me all the time, well, how did you go from scraping up change or sleeping on your brother's couch to, you know, being the money maven of the Steve Harvey morning show and being on the talk show every month and stuff. And it's not because I'm so focused on what apps to use or, or, you know, which budget in particular. And I think that's the problem. And I hope that this is a takeaway for your guests, for your audience, for millennials in general, is that, you know, true wealth is not really about what are the best apps you can use. Like the real definition of wealth has nothing to even do with money and material possessions. And the reality of my work is um, I really want to help people create well-being in every area of their life, because I think that a lot of times people think that money is their problem and it's not their problem. You know, they think that, oh, if I had a better budget, if I understood my credit report, you know, I would I would really be doing something. And I hate to tell you that there's a lot of people who budget that are still broke or still not where they want to be financially. And that's the reality. You know, there's people who've read every book and used every money management app and they're in the same financial position. And I think one of the best things that I could offer you guys is to really share with you that there are so many other pieces to building wealth that have nothing to do with money at all. Um, you know, one of the taglines that I use is chase purpose, not money. And if you're a young person just starting out, it is something that I would really encourage you to consider because a lot of people are taking jobs just for the money and you are going after opportunities um, just because it looks good or just because this is what my parents said I should do or this is what my degree is in. So I better go ahead and make it happen. But it doesn't really align with your purpose. And I believe that, like I said, I've counseled and coached hundreds of people that financial mismanagement has more to do with lack of fulfillment than what you did or didn't learn from your parents. Like when people are not fulfilled and when they're not operating in their purpose, their priorities tend to be out of whack. And when you're not fulfilled, there's a void that you're trying to fill with all kind of stuff, whether that be, <clears throat> excuse me, whether that be, you know, trying to impress people when you're out. So you're swiping for stuff, you know, you're trying to pay for everybody a happy hour to prove that your job is the bomb and you got it going on. 
<laughs> or, you know, mm-hmm. you're trying to drive the best car or um, live in the best part of town that you can't necessarily afford yet. Or, you know, you're trying to keep up appearances again to keep up with what people are doing in social media. But the truth is you're unfulfilled. And if you got in alignment and you were fulfilled, you wouldn't feel like you have anything to prove to anyone. And so more than chasing money, um, you know, what I've identified are these six pillars. I call them the six pillars of wealth. And I've really found that by getting clear in these areas in particular, it helps people be their best possible selves so they can attract the money. You know, like I said, I'm back to having a multiple six figure business It's not by studying a budget all day. You know, I, I've, I've hired um, a team of financial experts, you know, in their different lanes that help my husband and I continue to grow our wealth. So to me, it's not about all the this. Can I cuss on here? <laughs> I've been trying to hold it back. I'm a cussing kind of. (laughs) Yeah, but you mean we could have been cussing this whole time if you wanted to cuss? (laughs) Go ahead, girl. No, but to me, it's not about all this bullshit that people put out there about like, oh, if you stop drinking lattes, if you stop doing this. Look, I wrote three books in Starbucks every other day and made hundreds of thousands of dollars off my books. I wish somebody would tell me to cut out Starbucks. What the hell does that have to do with anything? You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that has nothing now to do we, with. See, now we get into the real interview. This is what we talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like that has nothing to do with anything. What I've done is gotten really clear about what my gifts are um, and really honored my, my, my gifts, like really stood in my power and what I'm worth. And I've learned how to communicate my value. You know, a lot of things that I've done included going to therapy. You know, the first pillar in the six pillars of wealth is called the fit pillar. It's about becoming your best self. So one of the things that I see all the time with people is that they're so worried about chasing money. You know, they're doing everything out there. You know, it's like, I got a blog, I got a podcast. I have to do Insta store. I have to do Facebook live. I have to do this. I have to do that. They think they have to do all these things to get noticed or to build a platform, you know, but you're running yourself ragged. You're not sleeping at night. Like Mm -hmm. you're not taking care of yourself. If you think saying, oh, I worked all day and forgot to eat is noble. That's crazy. You're not you're not taking care of the very vessel that's needed to execute the vision. Like, what good is it to have wealth and you you laid up in the hospital or you're taking, you know, prescriptions you can't even pronounce like we want more and we're praying for more. Many of us. And then we don't even have the capacity to walk into it because we can't walk around without breathing hard. Like, what good is that? Like when I started to take better care of myself, I showed up better which allowed me to attract better opportunities, which allows me to say, I know you're paying so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, $4,000 for this gig, but my, my fee is 10 and get it. You know, like I could stand in that. And another part of the fitness piece is, <clears throat> is uh, the mental fitness piece. Like I dealt with a lot of childhood trauma. I had a lot of things that went on in my life, including growing up feeling really ugly And being told by people in my family, um, you know, that I was too black, too dark, too lips, too big, you know, eyes too big, anything under the sun. I was too thin, too tall. It was always something. And so I grew up with kind of even though I knew I was a smart kid, I still had low self-esteem in terms of my looks. Right. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was like 25, actually 24, 25, where I really Mm -hmm. started to go hard on um, therapy to really get past that and and understand that hurt people hurt people 
And it was never about me. It was their situation. It was their problem. They didn't feel good about themselves and like really let go of that. But I always tell people your success might be on the other side of you sitting on somebody's couch because you can have all the degrees in the world. But if you can't look people in the eyes or if you continue to self-sabotage or if you're doing really weird things during your interview and you keep not getting the job, it has nothing to do with what's on the resume. It's you. And you may not even recognize it. So while, you know, there's this constant like work harder and go make it happen. Like we're missing the real stuff. Like, like we're missing the real stuff. Like you got to work on you because you could get all the money in the world and lose it. And that's one of the things that I really learned through losing everything is that I had a lot of money. You know, I had 16 people that worked for me. I had 13 pieces of property. Like I had all of this stuff and I had a lot of money saved. I was able to live off of savings for a year and a half before I had to shut my my office down and lay off my staff and all of that. Um, And I was in one of the most expensive cities, you know, in Southern California. And I was still able to maintain for a while before it just was like no more. Like I can't take any more. But um I did, like I said, I didn't know how to let my guard down and ask for help. I didn't necessarily know how to trust people. I had other things that I needed to work on. And once I started to really work through all of that, then the money started to come again because I was showing up much better. Like I was showing up as someone who could build better relationships, which is one of the pillars is people. It's like create relationships that matter. Like I was showing up as someone that people wanted to give opportunities to. Like a lot of the things that I've had, um, opportunities that I've received, I didn't ask for. I didn't pitch myself for. I, I, w- I was really just building relationships and willing to give value um, to other people. And it's, it turned into being able to give value to me as well. But people don't talk about that. Like we keep talking about budgets and that shit doesn't make you any money. Like <laughs> It just doesn't. Sure. Um, The first pillar is fit. We talked about that. The second pillar is people. It's about creating relationships that matter. And one of the things that I realized, even as I've been building this um, America's Money Maven brand, is that we get really caught up in, you know, building the business, getting the career success. But what I've noticed with people that I've coached is that, and for myself, It's really easy when you're getting a lot of validation from social media in particular to become okay with being a public success and a private failure. So you look great online, but then your your relationships offline um, lack intimacy. And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships, but like you're not there for your friends like you used to be. And uh, there's a lot of conventional wisdom that says, like, if they don't understand then screw them, you know, you got to build the vision. All that is cool, but you need people and you need you need those day ones. You need you still need the support and love and encouragement um, of the people that really know you, not this online persona. And you and they also need you. Right. And again, I, I've for myself, I have realized that when I pull back. Online a little bit and really pour into the relationships that matter the most, they also fuel me. And feed me so that I always stay true to who I am and then I can still show up better. Um, And a lot of people are, are, you know, they faking it. (laughs) Like that's, That's the real. Like they're just faking it 
you 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 have all these friends online, but you don't really have any friends offline. That's whack, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> like, like again, what good is that? So both personally and professionally, I've just really learned to build better relationships. And that way, again, I don't have to chase money. Um, I just show up better, or opportunities are just continue to present themselves. Um, the next pillar would be space, and that's about setting up your life to support you. And, you know, we've all heard the time is money. And I think we hear that and we don't necessarily know how to translate that. Like, what does that mean for me on a daily basis? Like time is money. okay? Um, but a lot of us are still getting to places late and we're still (laughs) let's keep it real. Like Mm -hmm. we're still spending a lot of time looking for keys and looking for our phone and looking for whatever. And, um, you know, we still have a lot of clutter that we might be dealing with. And what I've learned is that clutter is the physical manifestation of chaos in your mind. And sometimes we set a goal, you guys, and we want, you know, by we want to have the, we have these intentions and we want to achieve these goals. But um, it's not really it's not really happening because our, our mind is cluttered with other things. So, you know, even for me when I'm in my home office and I'm getting ready to record a podcast or I'm writing for something or, you know, working on a script for something, whenever I can't think, I'm like, okay, where am I stuck? Like what's like, what's making me stuck. And I try to look around. Is it my inbox that needs to empty? Do I need to scan these documents? Like something in here is taking up my energy. And once I clear that, I usually feel free to proceed, but a lot of people feel stuck. And when they look around their environment totally shows that they're stuck. Like when they're not making progress in the area, if they really, if you really stopped and took a look at where you feel stuck, where you want to make some progress in your life and you look around, let's say it's losing weight. And then you look around your closet and you got a million things that, that you can't fit that don't make sense. Like getting dressed is a chore and a task and it wastes, it wastes your time and energy every day. That's going to keep you stuck in that area because instead of doing something about getting the result you want, you're going to keep letting that energy drain you and make you feel bad. And instead of doing something, you just stay in this little cycle, you know, where you throwing stuff off the hangers and creating this little pile of stuff that's making you mad instead of just getting rid of it and embracing wherever you are. And then, you know, getting that routine or the, the steps in place to get it done. So spaces is a big one because it's about what is draining your energy really Um, And a lot of us get drained by the stuff that's around us Um, instead of using that brain space to come up with that idea or to move forward on whatever it is that you want to do. And then there's faith. The faith pillar is about believing in something greater, believing in something bigger. And I don't really um, force anyone to talk about a religion in particular. It's for me, it's more about understanding that there's always something bigger at hand. There's a greater purpose. And for me, it's really helped with my resilience. Like I've been through a lot of things in 36 years, a lot of things well beyond this, you know, losing my money stuff. Um, Before that even happened, I had a son that died five hours after he Mm -hmm. was born. Um, And, you know, he only lived for five hours and I held him until he took his last breath. And I remember joining this like recovery group where some of the people in there who had a similar experience, you know, they didn't want to go on. They were cursing, you know, God and that like all this stuff. And I saw that when you believe in something bigger, 
that it changes your perspective, right? So I believe that everything has happened for me, not necessarily to me. I believe that every time something happens, there's a lesson that I'm supposed to get out of it. And I just do my best to look for the lesson. But when people are not strong in that area, everything becomes a woe is me. I'm sure you know people like that. Where like, it could be the simplest thing. They act like they're the first person to get in a car accident. <laughs> yeah. Or like, like they're the first person to lose a job or they're the first person. And it's like, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You're not the first, you're not the last, you're not alone. And so the faith pillar is really about showing people that you have the power um, to try to find the bigger picture, to try to find the silver lining and to fight for your gratitude because gratitude is a wealthy habit because you attract more of what you put out there. So if you're always whining and complaining, then you're going to continue to make things bigger than they need to be. I always say what you verbalize, you magnify and you magnetize in your own life. But when you choose powerful words and when you shift your mindset to always be looking for, okay, what am I supposed to take away from this? What is the lesson learned? Like, where can I hang my hope? That's one of my lines. Like, where can I hang my hope today? Like, even if I don't feel like it, even if I feel like everything is going wrong, there has to be one thing that I can hang my hope on. And then dwelling on that as opposed to everything else that's not going well. Um, and again, when you when you walk in that, you attract people want, they gravitate towards you. They want to bless you. They want to give you the opportunity. They want to give you the gig, you know, like they want to choose you over the person that's like, <laughs> you know, because who wants to be around that person? You know, nobody. Um, so that's the faith pillar. And then really quickly, the work pillar is next. And then the money pillar and the work pillar is about living out your life's purpose. And like I said, when you know your purpose, your priorities are in order. Like when you, when you guys set out to do this podcast, if you feel like it's a part of your purpose, then there were certain financial decisions you made that went towards the podcast as opposed to tricking it off on something else. Right. Cause you could tricked it off on any number of things, but you wanted to get your design or invest in Zencaster or invest in all these different things. Like that was intentional because you had something bigger that you were definitely focused on. And when you're working in your purpose, you know, it's the difference between you being interested and committed. And a lot of people, especially when it comes to their work, they're interested in doing all these things. If you're an entrepreneur, you're interested in a bunch of stuff, but what are you really committed to? Because interest is like, oh, I'm a research and this would be nice. And maybe one day, <laughs> you know, but commitment is totally different. You like I'm in here and I'm going all the way no matter what. And living in your life's purpose allows you to, to have that sense of commitment to everything that you put your mind to, which, again, people who are committed are so much. Are so more they're so much more likely to achieve the end result and to live the life they want than someone who's constantly floundering about talking about what they're interested in. You know, people where they have the same goals every year and you're like, oh, you've been talking about starting a podcast for three years. You've been talking about, you know, starting a business for five years. Like you've been talking about that. I'm sure, you know, adults in your family, you're like, man, my auntie been talking about the same thing since 89. Like you're interested. You're clearly not committed because someone else has put it together in three weeks. So let's stop this. Right. So if you show up that way in your work, you're obviously going to outperform 
people who are mediocre. It just is what it is. Um, And that's kind of effortless because you're just showing up in excellence, which is totally different than someone who's showing up just to get the paycheck. It does show. Um, And then the last one is, is money. And money is about attracting the prosperity you desire. And I, after coaching and counseling so many people, you guys, I could tell you, I've, I've gone through budgets with people. I've walked people through their credit reports line by line, told them exactly what to do. Like I've helped people create debt elimination plans and use the snowball method to pay off their debt and do all this stuff. And it always came down to the people who were not fulfilled and who had all these other issues in their relationships Um, or at work, or just not really having enough faith or the ability to push past the mental crap that they have going on, they would never do it. That's why you've heard about budgeting forever and you you probably still are not doing it. It's not about the knowledge. (laughs) Like it's not about knowing what a budget is. We've all heard of budget. If you're over three, you've heard of a budget. It is what it is. Like the ability to actually do it and move forward is seeing that budget as a bigger part of you becoming your best self. And when it's a part of that, it just falls in line. Um, so just to wrap, wrap everything up is refund season. Um, both tax and probably some, uh, some college students getting their refunds. What advice would you just give them before they, uh, they go out and buy a section in the club? (laughs) Gosh, who buying section? Right. A whole section? Wow. Okay. Refunds are going like that these days. Well. Um Mel, you will be in the section. You just didn't pay for it. Exactly. I'm saying, like, who's buying them? Jesus Christ. Well, that's that's the watch thing. I think we have it a little easier um than y'all, Rodney. But um I think it would be coming up with the plan and doing what I suggested earlier. Like if it's not 50-50 where you're going to put that money 50 towards savings, 50 towards paying off debt, even if you did it in thirds, like, okay, I'm going to put a third towards saving, a third towards debt, and then with a third of it, I'm going to have fun. That's okay. Live your life. But it's about having discipline. So as long as those other categories are still a part of what you plan to do, now don't be like 10% savings, 10% debt, and then I'm going to trick off 80. That's just, that's not wise. Um, but if you put it in thirds, then- that's an option too, but it's discipline. Like you just really want to create this muscle of discipline because the numbers are going to get larger and you don't, you, people always say, well, how would the lottery winners, how do they lose all their money? Or how are these celebrities or athletes? Like, how do they end up with no money? Because they weren't starting with discipline to begin with. And so they didn't have a rule, a steady rule that they always put in place. It's like create your guiding mantra, if you will, of how you divvy up money that comes in like that. And then just stick to it, no matter what the numbers are, because when it becomes 100, 200, 300,000, I'm telling you, it gets real easy to blow through it. But if you have that muscle already built that I always put a third towards savings, I always put a third towards debt, including taxes. And then I might, you know, use a third to do something that I really want to do. Fine. But if you do that over time, every time you get money in, then you'll always have savings and eventually you'll be debt free. So just look at the bigger picture. Okay. I think that's a perfect way to yeah. end it. Um, Mel, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, I guess in one sentence, one piece of advice you would give, a, you know, a fresh out of college or a senior in college right now. 
just to wrap it up. Um, one piece of advice I would give you is I know that it's really tempting to take whatever you can um, because you want the money. But just remember, everything is a muscle. So don't become that person who's only chasing jobs for the money, never thinking about their purpose, because you can wake up 10, 15, 20 years from now and be completely unfulfilled and broke. <laughs> so it starts now. Build the muscle. All right. I love it. Um, Patrice, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? Uh, any books or speaking engagements coming up that they might want to check you out at? Mm-hmm. Uh, you do have a podcast. So if, if, if uh, you know, you all enjoyed um, her as a guest on our show, you can go and um, get more of her. Yeah. So the podcast is the Redefining Wealth podcast and you can check it out. Um, I also do really great interviews with um, thought leaders, authors, um, executives, some really phenomenal people, some folks you've seen on TV and stuff before. And it's really about listening to their journeys and hearing the fact that you have people that are wealthy or successful doing really well in what they're doing. And it's not because they're only chasing money. And so that's really the point of the podcast. We were just named 15 one of 15 most inspiring podcasts for professionals on Forbes.com. Um, so I'm really excited about that. It's growing um, really well. And if you want to go deeper into the pillars and hear me really, oh, really yeah. break down like different steps you can take in each one of those pillars to make some progress, then check it out. The Redefining Wealth Podcast, iTunes, iHeart at RedefiningWealthPodcast.com. All right. Um, that is all we have for you all today. Uh, one, once again, want to thank our guests for joining us. Uh, hope you all get, um, took away these, these very valuable nuggets and just, um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think this was a, uh, this was a great interview and, um, I look forward to, you know, just more dope episodes in the future guys. Thank you for uh, supporting us. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Bye guys. <laughs>